נפש יהודי. שלום? היי, ברוכים הבאים to B'nai Akiva Perth's first ever podcast. Today is quite a monumentous occasion, and not only because it's the beginning of my internet fame, but because of Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzma'ot. If you're listening to this on Yom HaZikaron, then I hope you are having a meaningful day. And if you're listening to this on Yom HaTzma'ot, then Chag Sameach. If you're a bit late to the party, then, well, happy Thursday. These two days are usually commemorated with big community tkasim and celebrated with a joyous halal, camel riding and falafel eating. What is so special about these days is the unity they create, the strength we pull from one another when remembering fallen soldiers, and the joy we feel with each other when reflecting upon the incredible state of Israel. Unfortunately, this year the community aspect of Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzma'ot is not possible. Instead, we have decided to make this podcast which will hopefully bring the specialness of these days into your homes, cars, or wherever you may be. So this is what we have lined up for you. A mix of different personal stories, opinions, and interesting history related to Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzma'ot. Interspersed throughout these stories are songs related to the message of the day. Some of these songs are sung by our very own Madrachim. So without further ado, let's kick off. The first song we're going to play for you is called Etzleinu Bagan. by Shai Liatari. These haunting words lament the reality faced by the children in Israel. The singer begins describing children in a gun or kindergarten. By the end of the song, the word gun changes to gedud, which means army battalion. Thank 
יש כאלה נחשבים, יש כאלה שפחות, אבל מי לא שמע על קופצי הנדנדות, מרים להם כפיים, מלמדים אותם לנחות, מורמים על נס הדגל, גאוות כל האזור, רק לפעמים כשהם קופצים רחוק הם שוכחים לחזור. אז בלילות קרים עם פנס מתחת לשמיכה הם מדברים והוא מגלה למה היא בשבילו כל עולמו מוגן מתחת לשמיכה אצלנו בגן נפרדים בשמחה כי היום לא ארוך ונפגשים שוב מחר חוץ מאלה שפתאום לא חוזרים יותר לגן אמרו לי שהם רק עברו דירה מעבר לענן אז בלילות קרים עם פנס מתחת לשמיכה הם מדברים והוא מגלה למה היא בשבילו כי בוכה כשהוא מציע It is with this that we will now hear from Avichai Bartov. Avichai is currently a shaliach in Perth with Tara Metzion. He will be telling us the tragic but heroic story of his grandfather, who made Aliyah from Romania and served in the Yom Kippur War. Today, Tuesday, the 4th of Iyar, is the day of remembrance and commemoration of Israel's fallen soldiers. This date is the day before Independence Day to remind us of the cost of establishing the state of Israel and maintaining its existence. I want to share with you the story of my family's personal memory about my grandfather, Zichon Olivarcha, who was killed in the Yom Kippur War. My grandfather, Chaim, was born on the 1st of Tishrei, the 25th of September, 1938. My grandfather used the free time available for studying Hebrew and English and Torah learning. In 1962, after the difficult struggle, he boarded a flight to Israel with his family. On the way to Israel, it became clear that the technical team that was preparing the aircraft caused deliberate technical problems and the plan had to make an emergency landing in Cyprus only 200, 200 meters from the sea. After this miracle my grandfather and his family continued on another flight from Cyprus to Israel. 
two years later, in 1964, he completed his first degree in chemical engineering at the Technion in Haifa. He was an exemplary student with a wide education and strong desire to learn, acquire education and wealth of knowledge. In Israel, he worked at the Association for Rubber Research in the Technion Haifa. In 1967, he married to my grandmother, Sarah, and together they moved to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he went on to study a master's degree and then also a PhD at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and worked in a chemical product engineering plant. During the Yom Kippur War, my grandfather was a reserve soldier in the Suez Canal in the Sinai Peninsula. On the 13th day of Tishrei, the 9th of October 1973, he was wounded and killed in an attack on the post. He was brought to rest in the cemetery on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. He left behind my grandmother, Sarah, and his three sons and his daughter, my mother, Rachel. Moti, my younger uncle, was only two months old when my grandfather was killed. My mother was just three years old. Throughout the years, my grandfather routinely scheduled times for Torah study. He even took Masechet Shabbat Part A with him to reserve duty. Until today, only Part B remains in my grandmother's house. My grandfather was a devoted and loyal family man to his parents, to his five brothers and sister to his wife, three sons, and daughter, my mother, Kelly. He was an enlightening person, diligent, comfortable, sociable, and loved by his many friends. He was always ready to help those in need and devoted his time to his friends when needed. My grandmother, with all the difficulty and with a lot of faith and help from her family, friends and, and students, continued to raise their four exemplary children. When I was born, my mother and my father gave me the name Avichai Chaim. In Hebrew, Avichai means my father is alive, and Chaim, as mentioned, was my f- grandfather's name. Today, my late grandfather and grandmother have no less than 27 grandchildren and three great-grandchildren who continued their with all the pain. This is our victory. 
may my grandfather's memory will be a blessing and may the memory of all those who fell for the state of Israel be a blessing. כי במותם ציוו לנו את החיים. עם ישראל חי. Thanks, Avichai. Next up, we will hear from Bradley Myers, a current madrich of Shevet Hineini. Before we do, we're going to play another song often sung in Israel on Yom HaZikaron. This song by Idan Imadi is entitled Hamichtav HaAcharon, The Last Letter. This song tells of a soldier writing his last letter to his wife back home.
Hello everyone. Um, as I give over this podcast in relation to Yom Azikaron, um, it's currently Motzei Shabbos on Saturday night, the 25th of April, making that Anzac Day. Um, I've just been watching the news of all of these Australian citizens standing out in the street at dawn service, listening to the bugle and lighting a candle and observing the minute silence. Um, that is how people have commemorated Anzac Day in isolation. And we will be faced with the same sort of situation, of course, regarding Yom Hazikaron. There will be no tekasim, no ceremonies. There will be no kumzits, no singing in groups. So this year we need to figure out what it is that we are going to do in order to commemorate Yom Hazikaron. Now, just a little bit of background. Yom HaZikaron is, of course, um, the Day of Remembrance, where we remember all of Israel's fallen soldiers and all of the people Israel have lost due to terror attacks. Um, I'm just going to share a story, a blog, from the Times of Israel by Josh Weichselbaum. It's about two soldiers, Dudu and Moshe, a true Yom HaZikaron story, who trained together, they served together, but they also died together. I'm going to start reading the blog now. If you show up to the military cemetery in Kfar Saba on Wednesday, you will see something very interesting. There will be two groups of people sitting together, looking nothing like one another. One group will be filled with people from Hebron and the religious communities of Yerushalayim. The others will hail from secular kibbutzim and Ramat Aviv. One will have men with kippot, the other men with body piercings. But that's where the differences end. They will be sitting next to two graves, right next to each other. They will have called each other in advance to coordinate their visit, and they will embrace one another like brothers and sisters. Moshe and Dudu were different people. Moshe spent his life in religious education, waiting to be old enough to vote for people to correct Rabin's error. Dudu voted. Dudu waited to expand on Rabin's legacy. Moshe spent every moment he could in solidarity with the people living in Yehudah Shamron. Dudu wanted nothing to do with the occupying settlers. As you might guess, Dudu and Moshe had no mutual friends on Facebook. They had nothing in common, at least not until August 1999. Both Moshe and Dudu had passed the Gibush, the screening process, for the paratroopers brigade in high school. In August 1999, both Moshe and Dudu went to the Tel Shomer base near Tel Aviv to officially begin their mandatory IDF service. They were both placed in the 890th Battalion within the Paratroopers Brigade, and for the first time, their paths crossed. Moshe and Dudu quickly hit it off. Both enjoyed sports, watching movies, and talking in general. Whether on base or off provided politics was avoided. Moshe and Dudu ended up doing commander's training together, and later on, both ended up in officer training school. Unfortunately, Moshe was forced to leave officers' training for extenuating circumstances and returned to the Palchod Company in the 890th Battalion where he served as his platoon's sergeant. Sure enough, when he finished the officers' training, Dudu was reunited with Moshe as the commander of the very same platoon in Palchod. Fast forward to March 2002 and Operation Defensive Shield. Among the numerous combat units fighting to prevent further terror, was the 890th Battalion of the Paratroopers Brigade. In a daring mission during the intense fighting in Shrem on Nablus, 
An entire platoon was sent into a house where a baby was found. Desperate to save the baby, Dudu gave the order to use cover, fire, to protect the infant. Moshe led the search. When he realised it was an ambush set up by Islamic Jihad terrorists, Moshe aborted the mission and tried to save his soldiers. He was mostly successful, and the majority of the, of the platoon escaped. They ended up killing all but one of the terrorists, the last of whom was arrested three weeks later. There were only two Jewish casualties in the house that fateful night. Dudu and Moshe had both been killed. Together in training and service, so too in death. In a moving eulogy, Colonel Aviv Kochavi, commander of the Paratroopers Brigade, spoke about the identical fire and passion of Zionism in both Moshe and Dudu. How can it be that a leftist bum could be a Zionist? Aren't his ideologies the antithesis of Zionism? How can it be that an extremist right-wing settler can be a Zionist? He is a revisionist, but surely not following the footsteps of Zionism. Yom Azikaron sheds light on this. It's the one day the year that has no left-wing or right-wing. The one day when the National Union supporters sit together with Merit supporters and reminisce. Together, they remember the joy and the pain. Together, they built the state of Israel, and together, they continue to build it. In Israel, everyone knows somebody who was killed, hurt, or affected by terrorism or war. And Yom Azikaron is here to remember them, to recognize the sacrifices that people of all nationalities, genders, political viewpoints made for Eretz Israel. It's the one day a year that has no politics. That is one of many stories relating to IDF soldiers, and there are many more sad stories relating to terror victims. This Yom Azikaron, we need to realize and think about how we are going to commemorate it differently. Are we going to share stories with our family? Are we going to sing with our family and friends? Whatever it may be, we need to make sure that we're doing something because this day is extremely important and we must spend the day remembering with loved ones and family. Thanks, Brad. The juxtaposition of Yom Kippur and Yom HaZikaron is truly unique. A day mourning the tragic loss of so many lives quickly transitions into one of the most joyous days of the year. It is this transition which reflects Israeli life, the pain mixed with hope, and the suffering amidst the exultant happiness. This mixture of emotions is exactly what we now hope to capture in, on this podcast. We will now hear from Nat Parry on her experience in Ethiopia as we transition from one day to the next. Hey everybody, um, it's Nat here, making my podcast debut with Benakiba. Um, Okay, so I want to talk, like everyone else I guess, about this transition that we're going through between Yom Azikaron and um, Yom Atzimot, um, and in light of ex- my um, experience being part of the Jewish community in Ethiopia. So... I'm kind of going to start a little bit backwards and speak about where I think the transition, re- like what really is this transition, and then loop back into um, everything with Ethiopia. Um, so I guess the, the classic understanding of this transition 
um, which is a really difficult transition and has a lot of questions whether it's the right thing and this and that. But I think the, the classic response, like the classic way that we understand it is that we have to first remember the people that put themselves on the front line for us to be able to have um, the amazing state that we have today, which is for sure true. Um, but I think that there might be another element to it, which is that I think this transition also shows the the complex situation that we have in Israel, this complex love that we have for Israel, that it's we love it and we want to celebrate um, its independence, but notwithstanding the the fact that we're not perfect yet, the fact that we're not 100% yet, the fact that we're still going through wars, um, there are still 18-year-old boys and girls on the front line. Um, so this transition just reminds us that that as amazing as it is that we have a state, things aren't perfect and, and we'd like it to be perfect or, or close to perfect. Okay, so putting that aside for a second, last um, or August... Uh, July, August, I was fortunate enough to be part of a group of volunteers from Israel um, who went to the Jewish community in Gonda, Ethiopia. So Gonda is a small city. I'd probably like describe it more like a rural town um, in northern Ethiopia where, um, where there is a community of Jewish people um, who came there about 20 years ago. So what happened was that, um, as I'm sure most of you are aware, there was, you know, like all these different operations in the past to help the Jews that were in Ethiopia make Aliyah. Um, and as far as I was aware until I was there, I thought that all the Jews had made Aliyah, but unfortunately that wasn't the case. So about 20 years ago, um, the Israeli government um, declared that they were going to help all the remaining Jews who were in Ethiopia come and make Aliyah. Um, that statement was made. Um, and then following all the Jews in little villages around Ethiopia, like this was, yeah, these people all spread out in their own villages. They all came together um, and came to two cities in Addis Ababa and Gonda. And they were there in a sort of waiting period where they were meant to, you know, learn some Hebrew get transitioned into their lives in Israel. Unfortunately, that was 20 years ago. And since then, very few have been able to make Aliyah. So the community is in this waiting period where they still have hope that they're going to be able to come tomorrow um, and come to Israel. But from the other hand, it's been 20 years. Um, so that's, that's the background of the community. Um, it's the same story in Addis Ababa. Um, since then, there have been more um, political sides to it. Like in the beginning of Bibi's last, 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 I don't know, whenever campaign. So he said that he was going to help all the Jews that were stuck, that were still in Ethiopia make Aliyah. That didn't happen uh, before this election. More political talks, but we'll believe it when we see it. In any case... That's the that's the community um, in Ethiopia. What I was doing there was over the summer months in Israel, it is actually winter in Ethiopia because it's Southern Hemisphere. We went there to run a summer camp, um, a sort of summer camp. Like take away any understanding that you have a summer camp and just use this word freely. Um, the community, the, the way it works is that 
there are about 800 kids that were part of this, this camp. So pretty much throughout the whole year, there are volunteers that come to Ethiopia from Israel and they teach Hebrew, they teach Jewish um, learning, etc. And then over the summer um, or the winter months in Ethiopia, because there's no school, because of the rain, this and that. So the kids have the whole day um, free. So we run a sort of camp. So what I mean by sort of camp is every day we would start off. Um, first, we would come to Dublin in the morning, which FYI, the whole community comes to Tefillah in the morning. Like I'm talking a thousand people in this like shanty, like tin roof, <laughs> under a tin roof. <laughs> um, everyone comes, so good precedent for the Perth community. Anyways, um, so after Tefillah, all the adults will leave and then we're left with all the kids. Um, and it starts off, the, the beginning of the day really feels like, felt like a camp, right? We, we're singing songs, we're, um, we're singing songs in both Ethiopian and, um, and Hebrew. Um, and then like, you know, it's crazy, everyone, kids jumping, dancing, etc. Um, and then we would break, we, we'd break up into our smaller groups. So I had a group of like very, very cute eight-year-old kids and we'd try and teach some Hebrew, teach some um new ideas new stories this and that um and that was our morning session and then in the afternoon we would also have an older group of kids who would we who we'd teach um like that was more pure hebrew um i had like a fun experience because i took like a 70 a group of like 17 year old boys and girls who were like really cool and didn't really want to behave but like whatever they were fun um anyways that was that that was pretty much our official day at the camp um, and l like the day was also broken up by things like we had mud meeting with, um, the Ethiopian Madrachim, sorry, I didn't mention, but in our groups, like in each Tsevet, there was like a, an Israeli Madrach or Madracha. And then we also had a translator and, a, um, an Ethiopian Madrach. So the Ethiopian Madrachim were Madrachim who were also Madrachim in Bnei Akiva. Um, there's like a Bnei Akiva in, in Gonda, the, one of the best, Benakivas I've seen ever. The Madrachim are phenomenal. Like the Hadrachas kills are amazing and like they're doing it with like if we complain about no budget in Australia, like there's nothing to compare to. Anyways, um so so the other things that like we did during the time that we were there is so that we we sat in on some Benakiva activities, this and that, and we also um had a chavrotot with some um of the older um, boys in the community. Um, in any case, that was kind of like, that is a general overview of what we did in Ethiopia. But I kind of want to now focus in on a few experiences that I think highlight this idea of the transition between Yoma, Yoma um, Zikaron to Yoma Tamod. So the first one is that every day in the morning, as I mentioned, we had this time where we were singing and dancing, etc. And one of the first songs that I remember us singing that struck me most was the song which was released last year in Yom Atzimut, which was, which is Kanzebayit, okay? So it's a song speaking about Israel and how amazing it is and this and that. We get to Ethiopia and we hear them starting to this, hear this song, start to hear them singing this song and it's, the kids love it, this and that, and then you hear that there's something like a little bit different about the way that they're singing it. And instead of saying Kan, like here is our home, they're singing Sham, there is our home. Because really for the, people in this community in Ethiopia, Israel is their home. They would, God forbid that they would say that Ethiopia is their home. And 
there's this sad but hopeful tinge about it in that it's sad that they're in Ethiopia and that they're stuck there and that the Israeli government is not giving them permission to move to Israel. But they really have hope that tomorrow they're going to be able to come um, to, Ethi- to Israel. The second story that I want to draw light to is um, a story with a friend, now my friend, his name is Melkamu. We learned, he's Ethiopian, and we learned every day a book called Teiku, which was all about different questions in Judaism, this and that. Um, and because of, because of the nature of the questions we were asking, we'd have interesting chats about religion, this and that. And one day, I kind of, you know, as part of the conversation, I was chatting to him and I asked, like, you know, have you thought about why you're religious, why you're Jewish? And like, I don't know, like the same way I would have spoken to probably any of my other chanichim about it. And he, he looked at me and he was like, of course I've had to think about why I was Jewish. So Melkama was part of a group of boys who the year earlier were given a six-month visa to come to Israel to learn in Yeshiva, a sort of shnat. Um, and they learned in Yeshiva Machanaim every day, steiking away, steiging away with the rest of the boys. But then when it came to Minyan, when it came to davening, these Ethiopian boys, despite sitting next to the other boys in the yeshiva, despite having chavrot up with them, were not allowed to be part of the minyan, were not allowed to be counted as the minyan. And yes, there's halachic validity to this, but point being, he, he was like, how could I not think about whether, why am I Jewish, when someone was so blatantly asking that question for me? Um, these are two stories. Now, the story with Melkamo is pretty sad, um, but despite that, Melkamo has this, Melkamo and all of that group of boys, they have this hope that they really will be able to come to Israel. But as I said, both of these stories have a sad overtone to them. And I think that that really is part of this transition from Yom HaZikaron to Yom HaZimut. That yes, I'm thankful that we have a state and I'm thankful that I can live here and etc. But my happiness and my love for this country is only taken within the sadness that I know that there are other people that want to be here that are not, that are not allowed to be here. The fact that we're not in the perfect country um, where, where we ought to be. Um, so I think this transition reminds us that we want to be praying for something and hoping and making it happen with our own actions, um, a better future. Um, and yeah have in store for us.
מתחרט, אם כבר לברוח אז מאחדים את הלקחת, אז לקחת בשביל לתת. וזה הזמן להתקרב, לפחד מהכאב, אם לתת אז כבר לתת מכל הלב. הכל אפשר רק אם נרצה, מכבס תמיד מוצא, גם אם הוא נמצא, איש המרחק בקצה. דלתות שמיים לא ננעלו, כשאבן קורא עשינו, אבא שבשמיים מגיע אפילו, אפילו שעשינו משורה. הוא מוכל וסולח, מוכל וסולח, מושיט ידו לעזרה, ונותן ברחמה את הכוח לתקן, ולשוב Welcome to the music segment of this podcast. I'm Sophia. And I'm Joel. And we are here to speak about some Israeli Hebrew music. Yes, Israeli Hebrew music, as opposed to Israeli English, English music. music. Yes, also a popular genre. So, for this, Yomash Malotsky decided that we were going to play two songs for you. Um, the first one being... Um, the Shofa Baita by Shari Bo. Brilliant song. Yeah. And our second one, which is coming up, is Shevet Achim Ba'achayot, which is by various Israeli artists. Yes, that song was incredibly famous in Israel, I believe. And reached Perth as well. Became very renowned here. Anyway, so we thought we would bring that song back for this Yom Rashma'ot. Um, obviously, it was written for um, Israel's 70th birthday two years ago. Um, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it actually took two years to produce though, so really big project. It has about 35 singers in it, um, all Israeli singers and songwriters, and yeah, and it was written by um, Dewot Melody, um, and he actually also wrote Toy, which is the song that Neta won Eurovision with. Mm. Yeah. Very big song. Very big song. This one is uh, perhaps less meaningful, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's meaningful in different aspects. Meaningful yeah. in different ways, you're right. But which other Israeli artists had a big influence on it, Sophia? Um, Idan Reichel, the legend. Um, he composed the music to it. Um, yeah, he was in Perth. Did you hear he that, Joel? He went yeah. all around Australia touring mm-hmm. with UIA, yeah. Yeah, he was incredible. Huge biggest artist to come to Perth. Very big artist. Mm. I remember you were fangirling a bit when he was Always. up on stage. Yeah. Always. Also got a hold of his guitar stuff. Anyone wants a photo, 
took a photo with his guitar. In the cave, yeah. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> Idan Reichel comes to Perth and Joel is like, screw you, Idan Reichel, I'm going to take a photo with your guitar case. <laughs> no, I've got to carry it downstairs. For him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> cool. Um, all right, so this Shevet Achim Ba'achayot, let's talk about the, the contents of the song, what it's about. Because it, if you listen to the lyrics, it's actually really, really beautiful. It is indeed. Yeah. So it, the title kind of translates to um, tribe of brothers and sisters. Indeed, it does. And we can draw from this. Um, <laughs> this writing a lit essay. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say for those who listen to this who are doing English literature, this is how you should structure your essays. Um, because <laughs> you don't listen to me or to my second worst subject. Um. <laughs> Getting a lot of facts about you here. <laughs> yeah, I hated English. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so sh- tribe of brothers and sisters. It really alludes to Israeli society and how there's a wide variety of cultures, uh, different religious and political opinions, and lots of the time they clash. But at the end of the day, um, we're all just one people living in one land. And yeah. Yeah, one people, one land. There's a, yeah, I really got the kind of impression that everyone was really proud to be an Israeli and, yeah, have a big connection to the land. Um, cool, and a little fun fact for you guys, if you're interested in branching out, there is actually a Haredi version of this song. Joel is laughing at me right now. Joel, why are you laughing at me? I have to say it's a little bit different to the original. Um, it's got some ups and some downs, um, but give it a listen and you'll see what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Joel, Joel seems to be a little less enthusiastic than I am. I like it because it's it has a jazziness to it that um, the original doesn't have. Like this one has like a lot of cool, I don't know, saxophone, um, and it's even got that weird rap. Um, what did I say? Yeah, like it's Barry White kind of esque break in it. Um, so yeah, if you're up for a laugh and for a boogie, give it a listen. Um, and let us know if you agree with me or Sophia more. Yeah, post post on wherever you post and yeah. say hashtag Joel or hashtag Sophia. Yep. <laughs> gonna be the lamest thing I ever said. Okay, <laughs> next thing. Cool. Um, yeah, so that's the first song we're going to sing and play, and the second one that we chose was La Shuba Baita by um, Ishari Boss. Yeah. yeah. He's also an amazing um, musician. Um, yeah, do you want to say what that one's a bit about? Um, well, from the title, it translates to returning home or coming back home, whatever. Um, and you can also see that in the perspective of coming back to Israel, our home, like home for all Jewish people. Um, and I guess you could, could connect the two titles of the song together and saying no matter what kind of Jew, whatever vin- opinion of you you have, come to Israel and yeah. Yeah, a really beautiful message, I think. Um, so I guess we chose these two songs to play for you on this Yom Ma'ut to send a message of Israeli pride and the blessing that we will all, please God, return to Israel once this pandemic is over. 
whenever amen. you feel. Amen, amen. Enjoy these songs. Yes, enjoy the two songs. Wow, that was truly incredible. Next up, let's hear about the memoirs of Jews who lived in Israel during 1948 from Hadassah Solomon. When we celebrate Yom HaTzmaut, we are celebrating so many aspects of Israel. Its history, its culture, its society. What I find the thing most worthy of celebration are the people that make up this magnificent country. The people that came to Israel before 48 to fight for it, the people and the diversity of humanity that is living there now. So I wanted to focus on this, the, the diversity and the incredible stories and extraordinary narratives of the people that came to Israel, made Aliyah illegally before the 1948 war and helped fight for our country in the War of Independence and the background of these people, where they were living before, what were they doing and what made them come to Israel and what was their experience on the way. So we're going to take a look at a few different people and I'm sure most of you have heard of Steven Spielberg's project where he records oral testimonies of survivors of the Shoah. Not many people know that there is a really similar organisation called Toldot Yisrael which 
records oral testimonies of people who lived through the War of Independence. So the people that I'll be talking about today, I have gotten their information from these uh, recorded testimonies on the page of Todd.yourself. It's a fantastic website um, if anyone is interested in checking it out. So let's have a look at, at a bunch of these people's lives um, in terms of their childhood, before the rise of Hitler, before things got too bad, before the thought of making Aliyah was really even so tangible. So I want to start with Uri Avneri. Um, he was born in 1923 in Germany, um, lived a really peaceful life. His father owned a small private bank and they came from quite a bourgeoisie wealthy family. Uh, next, we have Bella Zaplan. She was born in 1920 in Vienna. Um, and from the age of 12, she joined Beitar, the Beitar movement. So the land of Israel, uh, Israeli songs, Israeli language, that was all very much a part of her life. And she had a very strong connection to Israel uh, from a very young age. Um, we have Oscar Klein, who was born in 1929 in Czechoslovakia. His family owned a big metalworking shop and a big carpentry shop, and um, they were they were very well off. Um, next, we have a few people from Iraq. So Shmuel Giladi was born in 1927, and, and he lived in a really interesting neighbourhood because it was very mixed. Um, very much neighbours were Muslims, neighbours were Jewish, and they all lived together. And like the others, um, he came from a quite a wealthy family. Shlomo Hillel, also born in Iraq uh, in 1923. His connection to Israel was really interesting because his school was really Zionist and they would bring in teachers from Israel to teach at the school. Um, and these teachers would bring Israeli newspapers and Hebrew books. And the Zionist idea was really strong for him in Iraq. And he recalls that as a child, he could he could recite Bialik's poems. Um, Gideon Shemesh, on the other hand, he was also born in Iraq in uh, 1929, so six years later than Shlomo Hillel. But he, he saw himself very much as Iraqi. He and his family never talked about Israel, um, never really thought about it. And he really believed that one day he would fight for Iraq. Um, now, a really interesting story is uh, David Ben David. And he was born in Czechoslovakia in 1920. And he came from an ultra-Orthodox family. His father was very much a, a spiritual leader of the community and... They all believed adamantly that they must wait in exile, they must suffer through anti-Semitism and only go to Israel when Hashem brings the Gula and brings the salvation. So that's a bit of a background of these people's childhoods and where they were at before they made Aliyah. Um, and then throughout the 30s, anti-Semitism rises in, in all these countries. So for Uri Avneri, the one born in Germany, he recalls um, he was in the lowest grade at school. And there was a school assembly and everyone was told to raise their hands, stand up and, and sing the the anthem for Hitler. Um, and he wouldn't do either. He wouldn't raise his hand. He wouldn't sing. And remember, he's at a very young age. And afterwards, a group of kids came up to him and said, if if you do that again, we will break your bones. Um, Bella Zatla remembers the day of Anschluss very clearly how as, as soon as those days of Anschluss started, Jews were getting beaten up on the street and her life changed forever from, from that moment. Um, for the people we've talked about from Iraq, so in 1941, there were two days of um, intense pogroms in Baghdad. Um, there were 180 Jews, mur 180 Jews murdered, houses were robbed, women were raped. Um, 
for Gideon Shemesh, who, who really saw himself as Iraqi, he remembers that that day of, of the pogrom, he, he saying to himself, Iraq just isn't the place for me anymore and I have to look elsewhere. Um, of course, anti-Semitism was building up before the 41 pogrom. He actually, Gideon, he remembers standing in a market in the 30s, minding his own business and suddenly feeling an impact. And he turns around and a Muslim man has thrown half a watermelon at his face. After he recovered, the only thing the Muslim man said to him was, aren't you blind yet? So this is just some of the anti-Semitism that was going on. We, of course, know what the situation was in the 30s in these places. Um, But for all of these people, their families decided to leave. And that was how they made it to Israel. So for Uri Avneri, the man from Germany, his father decided to leave Germany immediately. They sold everything um, and they fled to France. And he still remembers that feeling of uh, on the train of crossing the Rhine and entering um, France and that feeling of total joy. And he says that France still holds really great, really great sentiment for him. Um and then from there, in 1933, made Aliyah and reached Jaffa. Um, for Bella Zatlar, she made uh, the one, the woman from Vienna, she made Aliyah um, on a boat and she remembers getting off the ship and um, going onto lifeboats to make it to shore. And they were, of course, it was the dead of the night and they were taken to some orchids and told to sit and just be quiet. And all these people were sick and starving. Um, so the Israelis who were helping the illegal immigrants gave out some oranges for all of them to eat. And Bella, being from Vienna, um, remembers that this was the first time she actually ever saw an orange. Um, Oscar Klein from Czechoslovakia, he um, was on a ship which he describes as the size of a matchbox. And they all of a sudden see a British plane fly overhead. And then they see three British ships starting to surround their ship. Um, the people on board agreed that if the British climb over, they're going to fight. doesn't matter that they have no weapons, they're half the size, they're all sick, they're going to fight. So the British climb overboard and they get their sticks, which is all they had with them to fight. And the fighting goes on for an hour um, until the British start using tear gas and then it was sort of game over and they became captives of the British. Um, he describes uh, being driven on these British trucks past the Kinneret And in his own words, Oscar Klein said to himself, I'm in the most beautiful place on earth, the land of Israel. Um, Now, Shmuel Giladi, um, also from Iraq, his story of Aliyah, I absolutely love. Um, Basically, there was a chocolate factory in Ramat Gan um, and they would export chocolate to Iraq. So the Mossad took control of the exports for a bit. And what they did was they exported um, crates of expired chocolate past they used by date because they knew that what would happen was when the chocolates arrived in Iraq they would send them back because they were not of an acceptable quality and when they did so um, obviously it had all been organized prior but a, a group of Iraqi Jews including Shmuel Gilati smuggled back to Israel with this uh, with these crates of expired chocolate. Um, Shlomo Hillel also from Iraq um, he actually came to Israel by plane, there was a wave of American pilots from World War One who flew over illegal immigrants to Israel. Um, you know, it, the plane obviously took off in the dead of the night. The plane had no chairs. They were just holding on to each other. And Shlomo Hillel describes how he will never forget that flight. 
um, that feeling that when you fly from east to west, the twilight just goes on forever and then all of a sudden you see the beautiful blue of the Kinneret. Um, now, David Ben David's story of Aliyah, the one who left the ultra-Orthodox world, is just absolutely crazy. Basically, he he was living in this ultra-Orthodox family and at the age of 16 and a half, he found out about the Zionist pioneers for the first time. He heard about this whole wave, this whole move, movement, and he describes just hearing about it as a Nesca doll, a big miracle. And at that moment, he decides to leave the spiritual world and join the world of action and productivity. So at the age of 17, uh, he sets out on a Bnei Akiva Hachshara program, um, you know, to build up the land. And, and he climbs on board the train with his Hasidic hat. And as they're traveling, he throws his hat out of the window and he describes himself as being reborn in that moment. Um, they get on a ship and the ship had no compass, no communication. The ship was built to fit 300 people and they had 1,200 people on board. Absolutely dreadful living conditions, as you can imagine. Um, the ship becomes uh, captured by the British eventually and they're stuck on this ship at the port for a long time, being captives of the British. So David Ben David decides to escape and he slides down a rope into the water and starts to swim. Swim, swim, swims between ships, between obstacles. Um, and he's not, he's not a great swimmer. So at one point he's on the verge of drowning and then suddenly a wave comes and spits him out onto shore. And that's how we made it to the land of Israel, naked, barefoot and alone. Um, really alone, no family, no acquaintances, nothing. And he kisses the ground. He comes onto shore and there are soldiers everywhere and he manages to get through and he it's about to be Shabbos and he sees this shoe store about to close for Shabbos and he goes in and he asks for the local Bnei Kiva sniff. Um, he gets pointed in the direction and there are a bunch of youth dancing in the Moladon getting ready for Shabbos and everyone is dressed beautifully and he, you know, he's just escaped from the patria. He is an absolute mess and he sees the Shabbat table laid out for him and it was the first time he had seen a Shabbat table for a year because he had spent nine months in a concentration camp and then three months in the ship. So it was a truly emotional experience for him. Now, all these people made Aliyah and they all fought in the War of Independence in some capacity. So Uri Avneri um, was a member of the Irgun and fought and was wounded, unfortunately, in the War of Independence. Um, Bela Zatla was a member of the Irgun and Lehi. Oscar Klein fought in the Golani Brigade in the War of Independence. Um, Shmuel Galadi also fought and was wounded in the War of Independence. Um, Shlomo Hillel served as a Haganah agent coordinating illegal immigration. Uh, Gideon Shemesh fought in the Palmach. Um, David Ben David, who made this uh, miraculous entry into Israel, was actually taken as a prisoner of war by the Jordanians in the War of Independence. Um, and that is a very, a very short summary of these people's lives um, up until 1948. And I just hope from this story you can just appreciate the, the diversity and, and the crazy stories and adventures that people went on and fought for um, to create the modern state of Israel. Our last speaker for today is Ailey Cinnamon. She will be teaching us some beautiful rough cook on Yom Hatzma'ot. Rav Avraham Yitzchak HaKohen Cook was the first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel and the founder of Merkaz HaRav. 
Ralph Cook is often considered the father of religious Zionism and longed to see the true redemption when Jews would return to live in Israel peacefully with sovereignty. Unfortunately, Rav Cook passed away 13 years before the foundation of the State of Israel. However, his insights into religious Zionism and the Kedusha of the land stay with us till today. Hey there, so today I wanted to talk a little bit about Abraham Isaac Cook, more commonly known as Rav Cook. I'm sure most people would have heard of him in some capacity. Um, and I wanted to look at what Israel meant to Rav Cook and a little bit at his Zionism. Um, but I guess, I guess most of all, I wanted to look at what Israel meant to Rav Cook in Tefillah in honor of Yom Hatzmot. So I believe that Rav Cook was a Zionist in every sense of the word. He lived, he moved to Yafo in 1904 um, before it was popular to live in Yafo and he became chief rabbi there. Um, and he moved to he moved back to Europe just before World War One broke up and he had to stay there for the remainder of the war. Um, but when the war finished, he took up a position as chief rabbi of Jerusalem. And then later on in 1921, he became the first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of the British Mandate of Palestine until his death in 1935. So Rav Cook actually passed away 13 years before the state of Israel was established, which to me is just so crazy because he has this amazingly clear view of how important Israel is to Am Yisrael's um, spiritual and national um, connection and the fact that he could envision something so vividly without the state ever existing is just kind of baffling to me. Um, but it's just one of the many amazing things about um, Rav Cook and his amazing ability to envision um, a, a future. Um, so the main way that I am familiar with Rav Cook is from his writings around Tefillah. Um, I started learning Rav Cook at Paradise in Jerusalem at the beginning of 2019 and I took a class in my second semester there called Rav Cook Song of the Soul taught by Rav Mike Floyer um, who compiled and translated um, like everything that I learned from Rav Cook and Rav Mike is an amazing source on Rav Cook. If you are interested in him, you should really check out his Rav Mike's resources. Um, he has um, a book on Safaria and many podcasts and other resources on him and he really brings Rav Cook's teachings to life and especially makes them accessible to English speakers if you are interested in that stuff. Um, and I've continued like learning Rav Cook sources that um, I have from my class in Echavrita in Perth. And yeah. Um, so Rav Cook has really taught me a lot. And it's something that really speaks very deeply to me, his writings. And something that I've learned from Rav Cook's writings on prayer is that prayer is incredibly alive and dynamic. And not only connects us with the divine, but also connects us with the world and humanity and with Am Yisrael. And um, yeah, something else that I've learned is that prayer can connect us and um, influence our realities in ways that we might not be able to initially see, but like 
that has all of these intrinsic workings going on behind the scenes which I think is is pretty amazing to think about and feel when when davening um because sometimes it can feel like it gets um wrote or I don't know a lot of different things um now I wanted to look at a quote from Olat Raya which is Rob Cook's commentary on the Siddur and it kind of ties into this grand notion of prayer um, to the land of Israel and how the land of Israel actually helps us achieve um, more kind of in prayer and I guess our connection with Hashem and um, our Avodat Hashem. Directing our prayer towards the land of Israel and the Holy Temple teaches this. In and of themselves, the national feelings within Am Yisrael prepare the heart for divine service, elevating the consciousness to recognition of the values of the commandments and moving one to do them out of love. In other places in Rav Cook's um, writings around prayer, he kind of like gives tips and tricks for how to like cultivate a scintillating prayer practice. And something that he addresses is that like one should have like a fixed and communal prayer practice, which I think is something that we talk quite a lot about um already when we talk about developing a prayer practice for ourselves but I think that's something that is really interesting um in the quote that I just read about like directing our prayers towards the land of Israel and the national feelings that this can cultivate within Am Yisrael and how like this kind of like moves us to practice the mitzvot out of like a place of real love kind of like really drives home the message that I think has like I've really seen throughout my time learning Rob Cook is that the prayer practice that we develop is not just um shouldn't just be by ourselves for ourselves that prayer is not something that is just for us and for our our individual connection to the divine really it's a very Um, communal thing even if we choose not to practice it in such a way like there is this idea in Rav Cook that it is impossible that prayer not make her impression but there's he really really drives home the idea that prayer is even more um like effective and stimulating and can achieve so much more when it is done in a communal way and and even more than it just being in a communal setting when there's a communal um, ideal or ideology behind it, um, the prayer can really achieve and get to such great heights. And I think that in Rav Cook, that is why the land of Israel is so important and pivotal to um, prayer practice, why being in the land of Israel is so important. To- because it means that a whole nation is behind your prayers. And it's not just your community or your city and there is something really grand and special about having the whole of Am Yisrael behind your prayers which is something and I think that that is something that can only be achieved in the land of Israel not only because it's a homeland for the Jewish people but also because of its spiritual significance and there are only certain mitzvot and things that we can do in the land of Israel um and I think that to 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 like have the notion of like what becomes of our prayers when we do pray in Israel or together or when our prayers are directed towards 
Israel and like we kind of have the whole of Am Yisrael behind us when we are praying is kind of a really magnificent thing to imagine um, and I hope that that's um, a thought and an inspiration that can lift up your Yom Ha'atzma'ot. So Chag Sameach and thanks for listening. Now our very last song is the most special. This song was composed for Yom Ha'atzma'ot by our Madrachim for the B'nai Akiva Eurovision competition. Have a look at our video on Facebook if you haven't already. Melody by Joel Morofsky, lyrics by Sophia Meisner and Kaylee Posner. And singing, we have Kaylee, Sophia, Brad and Yoni. With this song, we will end off our podcast. I hope that this podcast has made your day a little bit more meaningful and you have learned some new information, gained a deeper understanding of the significance of these days and managed to connect to Israel from so far away. Hashem imachem. I'm Israel. When I'm lying low, I know.